to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Aphex, high-quality analog gear for the recording studio. For over 40 years, the patented Aphex Exciter Circuit has been audio engineer's secret weapon for signal enhancement, adding depth and punch to the lows, and clarity and sparkle to the highs. Visit Aphex.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Wenasek, and Al Levy. Well, today we have someone really cool. His name's Graham Cochran of The Recording Revolution. And what's really cool about The Recording Revolution is that it's kind of blown up in terms of being a a source of a place for people to start with mixing and sort of engineering. And he's offering a lot of really awesome information and a very easy way to digest it. And uh, he's also been on Creative Live, which is really cool, too. And uh, you could check out his EQ and compression masterclasses that he has. There's two different classes on there, uh, both on creativelive.com. I just think that his whole thing is that you don't need to go to a massive studio to get a good sound. And so he tries to show people how to make the most out of what they got or, you know, easy alternatives they can make to what they already have, like easy to purchase add-ons. He doesn't do stuff with expensive gear. He does everything with, um, I guess, stuff that the common person or the beginner can use, and he shows you how to make the best of it. So I think he's doing a very good thing. Absolutely. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. How you doing? Hey, thanks so much. I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Fantastic. (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. Your voice sounds really nice, so congrats on that. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, yeah. you actually have one of the best sounding voices out of any of the guests. What are you using? What's your voice going through? It's just going through a uh, Rode NT1A right into my interface, right into Skype. And what's in your room? Like, is it a treated room? Uh, Yeah, but it's not that that amazing. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the mixing sweet spot, so it's probably the most treated place the mic could be. We were actually laughing about this last time, but lots of times we'll get some guys on here that are like, you know, A-level mastering engineers who, you know, would be the as audiophile as audiophile can get kind of dudes with like $100,000 monitoring rigs and all that, but they can't (laughs) record their own voice to save their life. And they end up sending us these files with distortion on them and dogs barking and just you name it. (laughs) (laughs) So we're always impressed when someone has a super clear, good sounding voice. I aim to please. uh, (laughs) God's going to make your job a little easier. Absolutely. It definitely will. Yeah. We, uh, we've already introduced you a little bit here and kind of tried to explain a little bit about the recording revolution, but perhaps you have a clearer version that you could share with our audience. And we were basically saying that your whole thing is helping people who might not have a huge studio, but have a home studio or want to start a home studio and letting them know that well, they aren't bound by that. They can get the best possible results out of that as well. And you basically just show them how to maximize what they have, work with what they have and how to make money with what they have. Yeah. Bingo. You got it. (laughs) Okay. then. (laughs) That was simple. (laughs) Done. Let's get some ice cream. (laughs) So what, what's like the, I'm curious, what are some of the earlier challenges that you faced with recording revolution and, and how did you actually overcome them? Because it's, it's been a pretty 
pretty big success, right? Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. I mean, the first thing is that I didn't expect it to, to be what it is at all. I had no master plan. I really was completely clueless and still feel very clueless about what it is that I do. But yeah, man, it was challenging at the beginning because I was trying to help my friends ori- originally that were all musicians that would send me a list of, it would send me like, you know, a list from Sweetwater or musician's friend and say, Hey, here's what's in my cart. Here's what I'm going to buy so I can set up my studio. What do you think? And I'd be like, man, that's way more money than you need to spend. I mean, let me save you a few thousand dollars and you'll still be able to get just as good results. And so I was always helping my friends navigate what to get if they're brand new and then basic stuff like EQ, compression, how to use a DAW, just stuff so they could get rolling and make their demos. I knew they were talented. I knew they were good at what they did on the musician side, but they didn't really know the engineer side. And, um, that's what started the recording revolution is like, I was tired of saying the same thing over and over again (laughs) to my friends. So my wife got smart. She said, write it down, write all this, like make it a couple of articles. And, and at the time I was, I was freelance recording and mixing and I had always done it on the side. So it's too chicken to go out on my own and, and do it full time. And, um, and then when I lost a day job at a really inconvenient time during the recession and I just bought a house and had our first child. And it was just, it was pressure city. And I was ramping up my freelance and had, I had some clients, but not enough to go from part-time to full-time in one week, you know? And so it was right around that time. I'd already started blogging a little bit and yeah, I was thinking maybe I could use this to get more freelance clients. And that's kind of what originally I was thinking, like, well, maybe I'll ramp it up because I might be able to get more freelance clients, but I was still writing for my friends and people like them. And, uh, at the very beginning, it just seemed that people came out of the woodwork to read this stuff and to watch my crappy videos back in 2010. And <laughs> it was helping some people. I didn't know how they were finding it, but the challenge at the beginning was just like, I don't know how to blog or make videos, or I definitely don't know anything about monetizing a website. So am I just wasting my time making all these free articles and videos for, for and nobody? So it was a mess of confusion, if that sums up the beginning of the recording revolution. You had the real life pressure of this has to at work or I don't really have a second option. <laughs> yeah, there was the pressure, which was good for me because I, if someone said, hey, quit your job and, and become a content creator slash freelance engineer full time uh, with no guarantee pay. I, I, I was like, <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> right. No, thanks. I want to support my family. I'm not an idiot and I, I don't I, I need to pay the bills. And I just had, you know not a lot of vision as it were. So I'm, I don't think I'm very entrepreneurial. Like, like the people that I've met over the years who, when they were 10, they were, they had a plan to take over the world. And, but at the same time, there was no pressure because I was like, well, what else am I going to do? I could go to home Depot and work during the day and then mix at night, but I don't want to go to home Depot. I, I enjoy helping people and writing these articles. And I didn't feel any pressure that it had to work in the sense that like, I didn't know any different way to, to run a blog. So I just ran it the way I would want it to be run. I wrote articles that I would want to read that would have helped me when I was getting started. I made videos that would have helped me back before YouTube would have existed. That would have been great to have had that resource. I, I didn't think anybody was reading my site. So I was as open and controversial as I, I think I am today. I don't think it's that controversial, but some people seem to hate what I have to say. And so I, <laughs> the internet, my ignorance helped me just get my content out. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Weird. I guess that's just par for the course with the internet. Yeah. That's all it is. You do something good. Someone will hate <laughs> yep. us. So how long was it before the recording revolution was actually your full-time income? It took me maybe two years. Okay. Yeah. I made no money off of the website for about six months. And then I made, you know, some dollars came in, but 
it took me about another 18 months after that to replace what was my previous salary two years prior. What was the money coming in for? Was it one of your courses or how were you monetizing it early on? Yeah, uh, it was all courses. I didn't know that if you start a blog or a podcast or something that typically people try to drive traffic so they can sell advertising. I didn't realize that was what people did. So I, I was like, well, honestly, I didn't think about monetizing until I was trying to make some videos on Pro Tools. And at the time, YouTube would only let me do 15 minute videos and I wanted to teach somebody who knew nothing about Pro Tools how to be super, super confident in Pro Tools, but it would take me like three to four hours of video. Like if you came over to my house and sat down next to me and we had coffee and I said, okay, let me make Pro Tools not like scary to you. And then you'll be able to go home and make records with it. That's going to take so many YouTube videos is what I was thinking. So I was like, how about I just record it and put it online as a download and maybe sell it because it's super long and took me a long time to make and maybe someone will buy it. And that when somebody first bought that thing, I was like, wow, what a, <laughs> what a concept. Uh, it must have been the best it day. Was the, it was one of the best days ever. I still have that uh, PayPal screen grab, like my, AKA my first dollar. And that was, that was how I was monetizing at the beginning. And it's, it's the primary way I make a living through this now is, still, is selling in-depth courses. So. so you've worked under some producers and some mastering engineers. Is that right? Uh, not necessarily mastering engineers, but mostly in the recording and mixing world. Yeah, I worked at a studio for a little while at... I hated that process, but what did you hate about it? Nobody liked making music. It wasn't fun anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It was all pressure. It was, I would go into work with these people and everyone had a frown on their face and I was just so confused. I was like, man, I got into this because I really like making music and it's fun. And uh, (laughs) y'all are not having any fun. And if this is the way my life's going to be and I'll get paid nothing and have to work crazy hours that I can't really support a family on, then uh, I'm I'm out of this. Yeah. The music industry has a way of... uh taking away your soul and <laughs> crushing you. And, um, you know, you, you really, really do have to love this, but you know, there are people that are doing fantastic. So, but I definitely know what Graham's talking about. I know where he's coming from. There's plenty of ways that the music industry can become a really, really sad place. <laughs> so I've experienced it myself. Mm. Oh, that was one of my main motivators to get out of being full-time in the music industry and to doing all this stuff like what we're doing with the podcast or creative live or you know whatnot it's been to try to get away from environments like that so i completely know what you're talking about graham it's that's a very very real part of studio life yeah there's sort of two things that we kind of do on the show and that's to try and motivate people or give them tools that will help them motivate themselves as well as give them advice on what to do with that motivation. So once you're motivated, so, you know, what is the right thing to do to actually propel yourself Mm -hmm. to that next step? And I guess the question for you would be, how did you land some of those gigs? And was there anything that you learned from those situations that you walked away from, you know, as a wiser man? Oh, I mean, there's been a ton of those. So like on the, the freelancing side of things, in a lot of ways, like I said, my ignorance helped me. I mean, I was making records in my dorm room at college because I said, Hey, I have an inbox and pro tools. I can make a record, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. why not? Uh, you know, why not? I didn't know. I didn't know any better. I, I was messing around with Korg eight track hard disk recorders in high school and, and some free cakewalk software on my Dell PC before I got to college. And, and it was all just like magic to me. It was all just a new, if you're a musician and you get into recording, you guys know this, it's like a new 
instrument to play. It's a new way to be creative. Even if you've already written the songs, wow, now you get to create the recording of them and it's a whole nother art form. So my ignorance and excitement in that in some ways helped me just reach out to my musician friends at school and say, hey, you know, do you want to record demos? Do you want to make a record? Do you need me to record your live recital? And I just, it was like the guy walking around, you know, putting up flyers that I cut grass. I was the guy that was walking around saying, I can record you. And I had no fear and no shame. And I didn't know that I was bad, you know? <laughs> and uh, I'm really glad I didn't know because I, I'm the kind of person, if I thought I wasn't very good, I probably would have just stayed inside and played Xbox instead. But. <laughs> but you know what? I really think there's a lot to be said for fearlessness. And I've read in many places and in many studies that the people who advance the most in life are the ones who either feel no fear or who feel their fear and they ignore it. So mm. to just say, I want this goal and you go for it and don't let fear stop you, that I think that that's a great thing that people should pick up from this because I think for a lot of people, it is scary to put themselves out there, especially if, if they do think they're not that good. It could be real scary for them and it could actually keep them playing Xbox. So <laughs> yeah, to just have, have no shame and have no fear and just go for it. That's the best way, I think. Well, it's like the fear of public speaking. A lot of people fear it more than death, so I hear. And it's weird because, you know, having come from a background of playing in a band, I've always enjoyed being in front of people, but I remember taking a speech class in college and watching people sit up there and just shake from nerves and trembling, and you're thinking, God, Mm. they're only talking to, like, eight other people. What's the big deal? It's just a lot of people... It's the self-fear of being judged, and uh, throwing yourself Mm. out there, for example, on the internet can be pretty brutal at times, and... You know, it definitely can make you question everything you're doing, no matter how good it is or how bad it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that yeah, that that was the new lesson with the recording revolution. And I, I was actually really honored to be uh, at, at Dave Pensado's show on Pensado's place recently. And, and one of the questions that came up was, what's your biggest challenge with being a YouTube content creator? And that was exactly what I talked about was not not having my soul crushed. You know, we're talking about soul crushing. That's the biggest challenge is I had no idea, again, little ignorant me, that I could put out videos that are free. You know, I'm not asking you for anything. Like, I just, I literally took time to make this video to show you how to do something. <laughs> and you could, A, complain about it. I never really understood that. It was free. So it's about <laughs> worth about as much as you paid for it. How dare and you then, waste our time? <laughs> I know. Yeah, and then uh, I'm going to go back to watching kitten videos now. I can't believe I wasted my time. <laughs> Um, you know, they, they were complaining about the video, some of them, but it was that people would complain about what I was wearing in the videos, you know, like, I don't like your V-neck t-shirts or what's up with that faux hawk, you know, I don't like your hair. I was like, what? Like, what is it? So I was, t- I was surprised. And at, at first I was just like, then why do this? You know, this is dumb. These people are, are like mean. I did this for friends that I care about. These people you know, they're just, they want to complain about something. So that was just a a new experience for me. And I early on had to weigh like, is this actually helping people? (laughs) If it is, maybe I'll keep doing it. If it's not, I don't really want to deal with these, these clowns on YouTube. So it was interesting experience. Yeah, that's crazy. I used to run a very, very successful guitar blog site before YouTube took over the world of instruction called InsaneGuitar.com. And, you know, it, it got hacked a few cool. years ago and I just have been too busy to restore it. But, you know, it was very, very well received. And, you know, we'd done over a million unique hits in like eight years or something wow. like that. And, 
you know, putting your name on something like that and, you know, being the lead person and putting out and writing articles and doing content is just like an open invitation for people to come after you. And just, I mean, I have an inbox folder full of just hate mail that I've saved over the years, just kind of, I mean, you're pissed when you read it, but you know, you go back years later and as you've been more successful and you know, you read it and it's kind of entertaining, but it's just amazing the things that people say and they do. And for what reason, it's like, I pay for this website out of my own pocket. I get all these people to come and write to help you get better at guitar. And you take that as I am some sort of evil, conniving, terrible person that needs to be destroyed. Okay, Mm. cool. (laughs) You know, like Hmm. it just comes with the territory of doing stuff on the internet. So I definitely think that maybe not reading comments is a smart thing or just letting it slide off your back, you know, like water off a duck's back or... Yeah, it takes training. Arrows bouncing off your armor, basically. It definitely does take training. I know when my band first got signed and bad reviews would come in or people would hate us online, I'd get offended. And I paid attention when I saw movie stars saying that they never read their own reviews because why would they put themselves mm. through that <laughs> you know they want to they want to enjoy their lives why why do they need to read that mm. do they just want to purposefully have a bad day like is that the mo so you know i then i realized no my mo is not to have a bad day these comments don't matter what matters is the views and the sales and if people are enjoying the shows and then you know fast forward to doing stuff online like creative live or whatever i've done i judge by view count and sales count and you know the positive reactions yeah. because i feel like the there's always going to be those dudes who just have it in them to hate, 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 hate. So you can't let it get you down, in my opinion. And for everyone listening to this, you can't let that get you down. Oh, yeah. And I I hate that it sounds like all I've talked about is is the negative side of things. It's, you know, these are the, the biggest challenges with being a content creator. You guys are aware of that. Being a band, being an engineer where you put your work out there, anything you put out there, the haters are the, the biggest challenge. And it's you know, who is it? John Acuff talks about uh, critic math. You know, you get a thousand compliments or positive reviews and then one negative one. And that's <laughs> negates all of them. <laughs> yeah. A thousand plus one equals one <laughs> negative review. And it's so true. So it takes, yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. And I'll, I can be doing so well because I know that what we've able to do here, the recording revolution has helped so many people. And, uh, and then I can forget that an instant when someone you know, says, well, that video's dumb. Or I think the mix in that video sounds horrible. You know, like, so I'm not even going to listen to it. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like, am I horrible? And yeah, yeah, I thought it would go away a lot sooner and it doesn't, but most of the people are so helpful and so encouraging. And they're the only reason why I'm still doing this. Otherwise I would have moved on. Uh, You know, if there's no one I could help, there would really be no financial ability to keep up this site and all the time it takes. Took me the last two or three years to really get over it. You know, now I'll go to a video like an Ask Alexandria video or something and it'll have, you know, 4 million views and like 95% likes and then scroll down a couple of pages and there's a comment on there that's just like, Ask Alexandria sucks or whatever. And uh, it doesn't phase me anymore, luckily, because I learned that the quickest way to failure is trying to please everyone and you'll never Mm. do it. So 
I always keep that in mind whenever I'm reading negative comments. And for me, it really seems to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a pack mentality, mm-hmm. too, because, you know, if you go and you defend yourself and, you know, it's like a bullying, everybody jumps on and, oh, yeah, let's bury this guy just because it's a cool thing to do. And then all of a sudden you have 10 times more people coming at you and you're like, hold on, all I was <laughs> just trying to do is justify what I was saying. And you just got to realize that it's a waste of time. Yeah. So, Graham, question then, if it took you two years to get to full income status with Recording Revolution, what were you doing in the meantime? Dude, I was, my time was split between creating as much content as I possibly could. I didn't know anything about SEO. I still don't. Uh, I didn't know anything about online marketing. All I knew was how to create content. So I figured, why don't I create as much as I possibly can and, uh, and let the cards and the chips fall where they may. And then the other half of the time was trying to record as many bands as I could and mix as many bands as I could to support my family. And it it was, um, it was working ish, but I mean, I try to tell people too, that there was 18 months in there where, well, we were on food stamps as a family and my kids were on my kid at the time. My one daughter was on Medicaid and it was a real low point for my pride because I feel like I'm working hard and I see momentum, but then you got to tell your your family and your friends, like, what is it you do again? Like, well, I'm mixing bands and I have this blog about audio and <laughs> right, right. How many kids do you have, Graham? I have two daughters of six and three. Congratulations. I have two and about to have a third in a few weeks here. So, um, wow. Congrats, man. How do you <laughs> deal with your wife during that period of time? Because when I got married before I had children, you know, it was the same thing. I was playing in a band and trying to make it. I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, we're going to blah, blah, blah. We're working so hard. And she's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me the money. So after that, <laughs> then it was going on to the studio, which was a slow grow. I mean, I had a good out of school it job out of college where I was making a really good office salary. Then I lost my job and I just said, you know what? I hate this. This isn't who I am. And I kind of went for it and started the studio and made like literally one tenth of my salary that first year or so dealing with like my wife and, you know, my parents and stuff like that at that time was like, it was just shameful. You know, like I go to family functions and (laughs) they'll be like, Oh boy. Oh yeah. So, uh, you uh, got a job yet and blah, blah, blah. When are you going to get a real job? It was really, I remember for me that resonates a lot. And that was very frustrating when I was getting into this stuff and it was, it was a real challenge. And, you know, you have to sit there and tell your wife and then you want to have kids and you're like, oh my God, because nothing motivates you more than when you actually have a child that's a dependent and you realize Mm. that you've got to put food on that table, no matter what, whether you have a good day or bad day. And, uh, that's a kick in the butt. I survived those first couple of years because my wife supported me. If she didn't, I would have quit because I was doubting myself. And if she was like, man, what the heck are you doing? I would have been like, yeah, I have no idea. So let's fold this up. (laughs) So I was on a, you know, the recording revolution almost didn't happen. Uh, it's, so it's just been one of those stories of, I'm glad my wife is as awesome as she is and supports me. She knew early on that this was onto something that there was I don't know. She saw what I saw, that people were all about what I was saying. It resonated with people. People actually took advice and went implemented and got results. And nothing speaks louder than people going and doing something and actually working for them and them getting excited about it and then them telling you and telling other people. And so even though the dollars weren't there, she saw that I enjoyed it. She saw that it helped people. 
And she was the only person, except for maybe my brother, who's my best friend, who I didn't feel judged by during that time, you know, but every, every other interaction was just like, what is it you do again? <laughs> Does that, was that work? Does that make money? And, if, you know, the first couple of years, I was like, uh, it, you know, I don't know. It will. <laughs> you know, I feel good about what I'm doing, but I have no good answer for That's you. That's a so. great one at Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I guess with having a very strong support structure helped you through the... Uh, I guess, lean times. Oh, absolutely. And and to be honest, like when I started this, it was in panic mode. Like I said, I'd lost my job and I was just starting to blog. And I was like, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing here? What am I going to do? And I'm a Christian. So I pray a lot and I, I try to discern what does God want me to do in my life? And I was, I'm so confused, so confused during that time. And I felt that he was telling me over and over again that I was doing the right thing, that yeah, doing the recording revolution was what he wanted me to do. And that was really hard to discern because at the same time I read my Bible and I can see verses that tell me that, uh, I need to provide for my family. And that's actually in there. And I'm like, well, is this really providing like, or am I just like going into my office and creating content and shooting videos and interacting with people's questions on Twitter? I, I really had a hard time personally and experientially justifying what I was doing in light of, is it taking care of my family? It was cool and all and people liked it, but between feeling like I was meant to do this and then my wife, who when I would have moments of like, you know, freak out, she would say, no, this is what you're supposed to do. I think this is really helping people. Let's write it out a little bit longer. I mean, she was freaked out too. She she prefers having money in the bank than not having money in the bank, if you ask her. Well, yeah. <laughs> Don't they all? <laughs> yeah, go figure. But, you know, she was really a huge support. Well, I was going to ask you, because I know there's a lot of people that listen to the show who are probably trying to figure out how they can get more clients. And, of course, when you start out, I feel like it is highly location-based. And that's why I was going to ask you is, what's oh, your yeah, location? Yeah. yeah, so I'm in Tampa, Florida. And when this happened, I had just moved from Virginia to Tampa. So I actually didn't know anybody in the area. So was it hard for you to ramp up and find local musicians that would trust you to you know, work on their music? And was there any kind of challenges there? Absolutely. So ironically, I didn't do much in the local scene and I still don't do as much as I thought I would do in the local scene. It all became all my past clients in Virginia. I reach out to them still and be like, Hey man, you know, send me stuff to mix. I'm more than happy to mix your record. I flew up there a bunch of times and recorded records. And then that became a thing that I, I started to do was mobile recording. I just sort of fell into it because the artists that I knew didn't live anywhere near me. And so I would literally pack a portable rig and fly to Virginia, Boston, wherever to make a record in someone's house or their church or their basement. And, uh, and that kind of became a way of life for a few years. So didn't do much locally. That's awesome. One of the key things you said there is that you kept in touch with all the people from your, you know, from where you used to live. And that's a good strategy, I guess, overall is to keep a little book of everyone that you encounter and to, to I guess, not take advantage, but make them happy that they want to hire you again and keep those contacts, you know, keep in touch with those people. And they might not necessarily reach out to you you know, it might not be intuitive to them to hit you up again. So every month or so, you maybe there's a regular basis where you're hitting those people up and saying, hey, is, it, is there anything you guys need? Are you guys working on any new music? Like, what's what have you been up to? That's something that I did early on and worked really well for me. And uh, I would also make sure that anyone who worked with me had such a great experience that they would go home and if they played any shows with other bands or went on tour, they would share the the story, which would have 
get me, you know, additional clients and have a lot of people coming in based on those. I think that being mobile helped me tremendously. And I think it's easier than ever these days to be mobile because recording technology has gotten so small. You don't need to wheel in enormous racks across the country of, you know, compressors and EQs and all this. You can do it with an interface and a laptop. But when I was recording full time without having these extra things I do, and I was 100% producing bands, that's how I would take care of gaps in the schedule or, or, you know, bands dropping off, things like that. It was I would look to places out of town and see how I could travel to them to keep recording. I wouldn't let it be limited to just people coming to me. And I also, I'd never really got people from my area anyways. People would travel to me to record, but I also would travel to them. I mean, like I've flown to LA, I've flown to Detroit, gone to Portland, gone to England, gone to France to record. And being mobile has just been a lifesaver for me. So I recommend that to everybody. Be able to go to the client if you can. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was wondering, did you go to school to learn how to record or you self-taught? Yeah, both. I I was like self-teaching during high school. And then I, I just wanted to be a rock star, you know, so I didn't really feel like college was a necessity to be a rock star. So I remember <laughs> my parents, they had saved up money and my grandfather had saved up money, which was a huge blessing. But they said, look, we, we saved up for you your whole life to go to college. So, you know, you, you can do whatever you want, but you're going to college. And after that, you know, you can go try to be a rock star. And so I found out that you could go to college for audio recording. So I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so compromise. So um, I'll be able to make my own records and and because that's all I got into recording for is to make my own records. And I think, Joey, that's kind of your story, too. And mine. Mine as well. There you go. Yep. So <laughs> that's all I wanted to do. I didn't really care about other people's music at the time. I cared about mine. And uh, so, I, yeah, I went to school in Virginia at a place called James Madison. And they had a great audio program. And that's when I started to actually learn how you're supposed to make records, which uh, was really good at times and also really bad at times. I learned some bad stuff in audio school. But um, what was bad about it? And the reason, not to go into a negative place, but the reason I'm asking that is because if we can stop people from spending 80 grand and four years of their life in certain places, I I want them to know what they're getting into. So I'm just curious, what did you think was bad about it? Oh, yeah. So this is a, a huge topic. A, in general, I would say go to school if you can pay for it. And when I say pay for it, I mean pay cash for it. I I don't like debt personally. And I'm so sad that so many of my friends are, like you said, loaded down with $80,000 student loans once they get out of school and they still have to go be an intern somewhere (laughs) or they they still don't get paid anything. So I'm like, man, what are you going to, how are you going to get ahead in life? And you're already 80,000 behind. Um, Yeah. How are they going to get the money to open their own studio eventually, or to just buy the gear needed to have a good mobile rig when they're on the line for that much money? No joke. So yeah, that's why, oh, if you're, if you're like, well, I guess I'll go do this and I have no money saved for school. It makes it a tough sell for me, but I was fortunate to have it paid for. So that was great, but the, I was going to answer your question, Ale, was um, the thing that I didn't like about audio school that I didn't know at the time was, you know, at least where I was taught, my professors taught me a certain way to record, which was maybe descriptive of the time we were living in. This was early 2000s, like 01, 02, and so everything was like, hey, digital is now the future, so record everything clean and never process on the way in, and so you don't back yourself into a corner, and you can always, always 
you know, compress it or EQ it or do whatever later. And so, um, it was all about just get it super clean and you can change it later, which is a legitimate way to work. But that was one of the things that actually made it harder for me to make records. Um, because then recording became, this was my interpretation of that and what it turned me into. Recording became just, just capture the source, man, just capture the source as quickly as you can because mixing is where you make a record. Mixing is where you invariably make your decisions is what I was taught. It's where you make your compression decisions, your EQ decisions, your effects decisions. So I became a person that was like, record everything clean. You know, if you're recording guitar, don't have any effects on your guitar. And uh, it made mixing way longer and harder for me. And I kept wondering, why is this so hard? Or really the mix was not really good in the end because it had no direction. Because when I recorded it, this the album had no direction. It just sounded like a direction list, like a producer list, soundless, you know, recording. So that was one thing that I felt like I was taught is that's the way you have to do it for my professors at least. And I've had to like undo that way of thinking for me. And, and sometimes I still record clean if that's what I want it to sound like, or I'm really not sure, but I was never taught to make decisions. I was never taught to commit. And that made the process too long for me. Ooh, committing is such an important thing to do. Uh, it helps me tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. We preach that one, commit, commit, commit as early on in the process as possible, but it requires a big amount of confidence in yourself and trust that what you're hearing is worth committing to, but how can you get a record done with no direction? Now, I do think that the one saving grace of that type of thinking that you're describing is to get safety net clean copies of stuff like, you know, safety net DI tracks, put a trigger on the drum so that you can use it later and stuff. But uh, to just record something that has no vibe, no uh, no stank, no art to it, and then to expect the mixer to understand what it's supposed to be kind of doesn't doesn't make sense to me because I've noticed that lots of the great art happens at the moment of recording. Bingo. So yeah, you're kind of you're kind of not letting that happen if you don't record with that in mind. Some of my favorite things that I've done done very quickly. Nothing left to be done at the end, you know, get the guitar sound now, hit record, commit that, yeah. you know. And I think it kind of works the same way in songwriting as well, too. You know, it's not like, I'll write the verse later. I, I've got a good chorus. I think a lot of the songs, some of the greatest songs have three to five minutes. I mean, that, mm. like that Imogen Heap song that's really famous. She wrote it in seven minutes. I know John Lennon said that you always finish the song that night. That was his, when he was teaching his son how to write music, the number one rule was finish it that night. Mm. Like, don't let it linger. Start a new song the next day. If the song you wrote that night, that day wasn't good, whatever, you write another one, but do not let it linger. The idea is only fresh once, lightning only strikes once. So finish it, do what it takes. And if it's not great, you move on to another one. I love that. The term we've been kicking around a lot is hot potato. Treat it like a hot potato. You know, when the inspiration hits, just do it, get it done, get it out of the way and don't procrastinate because if you do and you don't commit, you're going to miss that inspiration. And those moments sometimes don't come so often. So you just have to capitalize off of it. You know, it's hard for newer engineers and musicians to do that because of, um, uh, like we, you, someone said, just a lack of confidence. And the, I think there's a lack of confidence not just because they're newer, uh, but because they somehow believe, and, and for a while I believe this too, that there is a 
right way to make a recording or, you know, it's indicative of questions I'll get. And maybe you guys get these as well. I know you guys have done recording workshops and it's like, how do you get a good kick drum sound? And it's like, well, there's a lot of cool sounding kick drum sounds. They're very different. What kind of kick drum sound do you, do you want? You know? And, and the problem is, is they think that there is a, a right kick drum sound or a right guitar tone or the right vocal sound. And, and so they're afraid of getting it wrong. There's so much fear of like, what if I do it wrong? Or what if it doesn't sound professional that, uh, there's a lot of apprehension, lack of confidence, can't commit. So they sort of record things aimlessly and, and then they look to plug in or uh, a fancy trick or a side chain or something to magically turn <laughs> their, their fearful track into something amazing. Um, and so I think a lot of times just uh, having the, the guts to say, I'm going to make something that sounds cool to me and I don't really know or care if it's right or if it's the right way to do things can be a beneficial practice. I think one of the best ways to get over that fear is to just do whatever it is you're afraid of a lot. For instance, if you are afraid or procrastinating on getting a kick drum sound, well then try to get 10 kick drum sounds. If you're like procrastinating working on a mix because you don't know what you're going to do with the vocals, well then mix them 10 different ways. Just make yourself mix them 10 different ways. And even if the first few rounds suck, by 10 times later, they're not going to suck. And what that does also by doing a bunch of versions is that each version becomes less important in your mind. So mm. if you're so scared of this one thing, this one thing is just like burrowing a hole through your brain and not letting you go forward. If you do 10, you can't focus on that one thing anymore. So that's one way that I've kind of overcome fear of moving forward on things is instead of focusing on that one thing, multiply it. And then you can't be scared of it. Now I have five kick drum sounds to choose from? Which one do I like best? Which one fits best? And then by doing that also, you start to realize that there is no right or wrong. There's just context. Does it fit in the context of the song and this mix? Yes or no? Easy. Well, I feel like to improve anyways, you have to make a ton of mistakes. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you record a guitar and it sucks. When you get to mix, you'll be like, okay, it was crap. So reamp it, try it again. And from that experience of making a lot of mistakes or having results that would you consider under par, that's how you get better. You just have to listen to your work, be aware of what it is and how it stacks up, and then think about how you can improve it. Try stuff, be experimental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I started out, I, I had that same attitude, which was do stuff that I think sounds good. Uh, I never really was afraid to you know, I wasn't apprehensive about it at all. I would just, I've, I think I've probably told the story way too many times in the podcast, but I had a rod, Radio Shack microphone. I would just sit it on my table and I would play drums next to it. And then I would record that into Sony Acid Pro and then open the stock EQ that came with it and uh, tweak it for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and uh, wasn't afraid of anything. So experimentation is another thing that like you said, Joel, that's something that a lot of people need to do more of. And just be fearless. Do your best. Even if you are scared, pretend yeah. that you're fearless. Oh, yeah. Fake it till you make <laughs> it on the fearless front. Well, there's a lot of studies, too, between successful and non-successful people where a successful person will get an idea and might or might not get that pang of fear of what if it fails, what if it's dumb, what if, what if, they still go for it anyways. Like they put that to the side, whereas the non-successful person gets the same idea because 
Everyone gets good ideas. There's no shortage of ideas. So the non-successful gets the idea and then the natural fears come in, the what ifs, what if that, what if you're dumb, what if you'll fail, what if, what if, well, you'll get made fun of, tomatoes will get thrown at you, and then you'll get drawn and quartered, um, and then they just don't do anything about it. So question for you, it's 2015, it's a tough market, lots of people are recording now. Do you have any advice for people that are production beginners who are trying to come up in this tough market and either supplement their income or go full time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, um, the people that are going to make it in this industry are the people that aren't looking at the crowded market and saying, Oh my gosh, everyone is making records now. How am I going to stand out? It's the people that are focused on, uh, being their client's favorite and, and adding as much value as possible. So there's a couple things you can do there. One is you know, don't be a jerk. And, uh, and that'll get you a lot farther than a bunch of people. So that eliminates maybe 20, 30, 40% of the population, maybe more. I'm being, I'm being conservative. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> be, be all about, if you have one client, even if it's a free client, let's say you're starting out and you're making a record for some friends and it's for free and you're just getting experience. They're getting a free recording make it as amazing as possible and treat them like royalty, treat them like they are a high paying client and, and don't phone it in, uh, be creative, make them happy. If they're not happy with how things are going, find out ways you can add more value either in the recording phase or the mixing phase to make it what they want. If they're having challenges, solve them and just bend over backwards. Uh, like Joey, you said, having clients that want to work with you again, because you were a joy to work with word of mouth is still how things work in this world. Uh, it's just been, you know, only exaggerated by social media. Absolutely. So word of mouth is the most powerful thing you can have or have destroyed. And, uh, you know, they say all things being equal, all other things being equal price or competency, let's say, or maybe even if you throw some of those out, people prefer to work with people they know and trust and like. And so it's very easy to be somebody's trusted advisor to be someone's uh, helper. And that's why I try to think about any client I have. And now if it's, if it's a student of mine, I want to be their trusted advisor, meaning I want to suggest things that will help their uh, recordings get better. If it, if it, even if it means working with somebody else or taking, checking out somebody else's tutorial, or if somebody does something better than me, um, I can have a lifelong relationship with this customer if I do everything I can to make sure that they get what they need and uh, they get value. And, um, People recommend you because of that. So you may not have a lot of clients right now, but the ones that you do have, you will always stand out because you do excellent work. Yeah, but you make their lives better because you add so much value and you make it all about them and not about you. Yeah. Another thing I always recommend is to be consistent, but also be someone that they can count on. And if you figure out those two things and if you figure out how to do it to enough people, you'll be set for a long time. Now the music industry, of course, changes a lot and people don't tend to stay with the same producer forever. I mean, some people do, some don't. So you have to you know, keep that in mind. But as long as you're, you know, being someone that they can count on and if you say that you're going to have it by Tuesday and you turn it in by Tuesday, then that's huge too. Absolutely. Another thing I was thinking about too is going back to the, what's the right way to record or the right way a kick drum should sound. Everybody in, the, in their mom right now is trying to get good at recording and mixing. And uh, good is, is a, a made-up benchmark that 
we're all shooting for. Maybe it's a certain type of record or whatever. But I think the people that are probably stand out the most long-term have a good career in this are the people that are in, innovative in terms of sounds. You know, it's like funny. Dave Pensado always says it's better to sound new than to sound good. And um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's great advice. I agree. Yeah, I think I, and that is the most encouraging thing I could say to somebody because you could be brand new at this, but you could think of a new way something could sound. And man, that's exciting when you think about it that way. We've got some questions from our audience that we'd like to ask you. So Michael McDonald is asking, could Graham discuss the history of how he found success with his YouTube tutorials and what, in his opinion, are the opportunities that the YouTube platform might provide for musicians, engineers, creative folk in 2015? What, if any, are some smart, effective ways to use technology like YouTube to put your name out? Oh, great question. There's a million ways to succeed with YouTube. I have a lot of friends that have popular YouTube channels and they do different things. What's worked for me is having a consistent voice. So I, I figured out early on what the recording revolution is going to be all about. I'm going to teach you how to make killer records with really affordable stuff, AKA what you already own, which is always the cheapest stuff, the stuff you already have. And so I'm, I'm always going to challenge the notion that you need to spend more money. I'm going to challenge that consistently. I'm going to show simple tips. I'm, a, I'm not a very complex person as I don't, I can't wrap my head around really complex things. So I keep my teaching very simple. I always focus on simple moves, foundational elements. And I teach from a musician standpoint, not an engineer standpoint, because I'm more musician than engineer. So I always think about it as a song, as a piece of music and not about it as a formula that you plug this frequency into this and you get this result. So I kind of know all those things about the way I teach. And so when people find my, I say all that to say, when you find my channel, you either instantly jive with it and go, oh, cool, this is what I'm looking for. Or you go, this guy, A, I don't like his V-necks, I don't like his faux hawk, and B, <laughs> uh, it's too basic for me, or he doesn't know what he's talking about. I want someone to show me some really crazy, sick, advanced stuff because they want the next level, whatever that means to them. So they either like it or they don't, and I try to be as consistent as possible, and I want to divide as quickly as possible. You want your YouTube channel to be very divisive in that way. Either it's going to be, it's not for everybody. You can't be for everybody. So like if you're a clothing line, are you clothing line for all human beings, <laughs> old people, young people, male, female, or are you a clothing line for 18 to 25 year old men that live in the city and they have high paying jobs, you know, like it's going to define kind of what style you create. And for those guys, your clothing line is going to be perfect. And for, you know, grandmas that live in the middle of Wisconsin, they're going to say, no, that's not for me. And that's a very good thing. <laughs> so you want your YouTube channel to be very clear because that's how you're going to grow an audience, a loyal audience, an audience that loves you and other people will go somewhere else. But that alone won't make you a living unless, like some of my friends, I have a guy, friend who's uh, named Peter Hollins and he's a big acapella singer, producer. And he was an engineer, but he also is a singer-songwriter. And he's just gotten big on YouTube these last four or five years just doing killer music videos. Very highly produced, all acapella. He, he arranges the popular songs, records them all himself, mixes them, and then produces these high-budget videos. And maybe he does one a month, maybe two a month. And uh, they take him a long time. But between selling records through that or YouTube advertising or things like Patreon where he can get some supporters, he makes a full-time living, you know, creating YouTube videos. I, on the other hand, don't make hardly anything off of actually YouTube. YouTube for me is a place to be discovered, grow a, an audience. And then I try to send them to 
my site because my site is where I can get them to join in my newsletter, where I can send them even more material and eventually let them know that I have really in-depth courses that a small percentage of them will buy, but that's enough to make a living. So I, I use YouTube to direct people back to my, my mailing list. So I would say start a mailing list from day one. Yeah. And I, if you're in a band and you're listening to this, you need to make a mailing list. There's so I tell every band, why don't you have a mailing list? It doesn't make any sense. The only reason why I even know anything that's happening with Deftones or Slipknot is because they email me because I'm too busy doing other stuff and I don't pay attention to all the music news that's going on. And when they email me, I open it because I like the band and it's usually something really cool. So like, why aren't you doing that? And there's also a really, uh, a really practical reason to start an email list, which is you might have a lot of followers on social media and that's great. And social media groups, and forums and whatever that that's all fantastic good job but what happens if they decide to change their rules concerning something that has been giving you a lot of traction you know we know facebook changes their rules all the time at the drop of the hat and certain features that maybe were great that some people were using just will one day you'll wake up and they don't they don't exist anymore. So your email list is the one thing that you own that gives you contact to all your people. No matter what rules get changed on social media networks, you still have your email list. So highly recommended. Hundred percent agree. Absolutely. And emails are still the best way to get in touch with people. It's the most direct thing. Here's a question from Jason LaFontaine. <laughs> Awesome last name. name. Yeah. Uh, Graham has the audio income project and coaches individuals starting up a recording mixing business. What is the most common mistake that he sees his students make when they first start out? And what is the most valuable piece of business advice that was ever given to you, Graham? Oh, so you want all the goods for free. No, um, <laughs> that's, that's a great, great question. Sign up at Re- Recording Revolution. Yeah, just just buy my course. No, um, I'll, no I'll tell you. Do I'll it. tell you. So, <laughs> I see, I see so many mistakes. One of them is kind of goes back to the YouTube channel. If I go to like, I review a lot of these students' websites, like they built up their, their portfolio site. They want to freelance. They want to get into recording and mixing. And what I'm trying to teach them in this course is, is how to start doing this as a little side income. My goal is to teach them how to make 500 to a thousand bucks a month on the side doing it. And it's a really manageable goal and I do that for a reason because I want people to realize that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm able to bring in an extra 500 to 1,000 bucks a month doing what I love for a few hours a week while I keep my, my day job or while I go to school. And then the guys that are crazy into it will ramp that up. And, and if they get really good, they'll go for it. But other guys will just be happy to have some extra money. So I'm teaching these guys how to do it. And a lot of them have never set up a portfolio website. And the biggest mistake I see is on their sites is, A, they, they're like the Walmart of audio. I'll record you. I'll mix you. I'll master you. I'll produce your videos. I'll be songwrite. <laughs> I can do everything. So, and you don't want to. You don't want to do everything. You want to be able to do everything, but you don't want to. You don't want your site to be like, "Hey, I do all these services." You want it to be very, very clear that like you are an expert at mixing. All I do is mixing. There's something amazing about stumbling across a guy's site and all he does is mixing. You think, "Huh? All he does is mixing. He must be good at mixing. He's not even bothering with recording or mastering. He just he specializes." And now you may be able to do lots of different things, but I, I say pick a thing or two, but pick what's your main thing, your unique offering, and then make your site as clean and simple as possible. And people have cluttered their websites with 
all kinds of stuff, like all, all everything they're doing, all kinds of random pictures. And it, the websites are all about them. Like, this is me. I went to audio school. This is my gear. And, and nobody cares about you when they come to your site, you know? And I mean that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> nobody cares about me when they come to the recording revolution. One of the best books ever written, I think Dale Carnegie. He said, if you want to interact with someone, make it all about them. What if the Dale Carnaby book was called Nobody Cares? (laughs) That would be really cool. That would be hilarious. (laughs) It's true. I just try to tell guys to think about, you know, think about the person coming to your site. You're lucky they even found your site. If they find your site, what do they care about? They care about their music being made and it sounding awesome. So you want the first thing that they see on the site to be like, Let's make your music sound freaking awesome. Keyword, your. Yeah, like, you've got great songs. Let's turn them into radio-ready releases or whatever it is. Or it's all about them because people are like, yes, yes, that's what I want. And then they want to know, like, well, is this guy any good? They can hear what you can do. But again, you turn it all the way to be about them. Like, let's get your music worked on. Let's make your stuff sound good. And every site is always backwards. It's always about me because everyone's afraid. They need to justify, well, these, this is what I've done. These are all the people I've worked with. I'm really good at what I do. And... And people care less about that. They care about results. And so can you get them results and can you focus on them? So that's huge uh, for getting off the ground and, and having a, a site that I think converts to probably a, an email or consultation. Did that answer the question? Cool. Yes. Very well. I think so. Yeah. That was a really good answer, actually. AJ Vienna is asking, what are some of the challenges, apart from time and technical, you encounter when putting out the volume of videos you do? I'll tell you right now, it's, it's staying focused and motivated sometimes. I've been writing and creating articles and videos on recording music and mixing music in the home studio for coming on six years now. Three times a week, usually every week. It's the, the volume of it is it's getting to a point where sometimes I'm like, man, I have to, I have to remember that there's always new people at the site that have just found me that are in the same place that I was when I started and they still need some of the same concrete things taught to them in a, in a fresh way that's relevant to them. And so trying to think like them and not think about, well, I've already covered that or I've said my piece on that. Try to come up with new ways because I don't also want to duplicate what's on my site, but come up with new ways to share the same things that will still help people because I still believe that it's there's some real basic things that people are getting wrong when they're recording and mixing that I was getting wrong. That I when I when I have a bad mix, it's because I'm getting these things wrong. I still feel like it's the same core tenets that I'm trying to preach and it's staying focused and motivated to keep doing that when my interests can wax and wane depending on how the month is going. So yeah, it's, it's hard to be consistent and to have that the same excitement and the same passion to serve these people who have found my site and taken the time to even look at my site. I want to serve them with as much enthusiasm and help as I did when I started this thing. So that's probably my biggest challenge. So what do you do to keep it fresh? Oh man. Keep making mistakes. <laughs> Keep making music and making mistakes. I always, nice. <laughs> always try to write about those. I just sent a video to my list yesterday because I always try to send bonus stuff to them that I don't post. And I sent a video about how I've been getting my butt kicked on this uh, this site that I have with my buddy Joe Gilder. We call Dueling Mixes. We mix the same song each month and our members mix it and we kind of duke it out. And there's literally a voting system who, who did a better job mixing it, me or him. And uh, he's been kicking my butt the last four months straight. I like, usually it's kind of back and forth, but four months he's been winning. And I'm like, dude, what do I got to do to beat this guy this year? My summer, I've been off and I'm always listening to his mixes and watching his tutorials to see like, what did he do differently? What do people like about his mix versus mine? Cause it's the exact same tracks. And I've noticed some real basic things that I, I would have this killer mix. I thought, and then 
the snare drum level just wasn't right, you know? And when you listen to his mix, the snare just jumps out of the speaker much better. I'm like, ah, man, I couldn't even bother to turn the snare drum up. You know, it's been hours mixing this thing. The snare drum's not right. So I, I sent a video just talking about some of the mistakes I've been making this summer and the lessons I've been learning. And, uh, and that kind of stuff is really helpful to people because they're, they're struggling with the same things I struggle with. So I try to share my mistakes I try to share new things that I've learned that have helped on a record. I try to read magazines and watch tutorials to like see what other people are doing. I love the voyeurism aspect of like a like one of your guys' creative live classes or or YouTube where I can see what other people are doing because everybody makes records differently and go, huh, will that work? And then try it on a on a piece of audio and go, man, that was really cool or a variation of that work. So I'm constantly trying to stay in it myself so that it keeps me excited about it because when I get into a routine of just teaching stuff, and I haven't been excited about something in music lately, then I can tell that my content's just not as great because I'm not excited. That makes perfect sense. So basically, keeping yourself new, in the words of Dave Pensato, I, I would say relevant, just keeping relevant, keeping abreast of what the new tricks are and what people are doing and what people are paying attention to, not just relying on stuff that you made in the past. Absolutely. And you know, if you have an email list, if you're a band, this is another reason to have you have an email list. If you're a band or you're a content creator, don't just use the list to broadcast stuff. Like when you got a show or when you've got a, a video or, or a product, use it to gather information, ask good questions and say, you know, what is your biggest challenge right now? If you're, I'm creating content tutorials. So I ask people, what is your biggest frustration in the studio or Ask your fans, what, what are some of your favorite records you're listening to right now and why? Or, you know, what's your favorite record on our song on our record recently? Or where, where do you want us to play a show? Or what are you interested about the band? Ask people and they will tell you what they want and then you can give them what they want. And it'll probably inspire you and get you excited too. Cool. And one more question from Tom Bussey Clark. I guess what I mean is since Graham's content is predominantly geared towards home studios and that he is a musician himself, what is some advice he can give to help overcome issues that you may have mixing your own music? So I guess, do you have any advice for people who aren't mixing for clients, but are mixing their own songs? Like, how do you separate from this is my song and then become just the uh, objective mixer? Yeah, that question comes up a lot. It's a good one. And I think that's a huge part of, of my audience, at least. Um, so when I make my own records, I always try to pretend like the next phase in the, the line doesn't exist. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with commitment. When I record, I try to pretend like there is no mixing phase. So if something doesn't sound good, I, I'm like, man, Graham, don't, don't be lazy. Don't like, just make it sound good now. Make it sound awesome now. So what do we have to do to make this sound awesome if it's a vocal or a drum or something? So I try to do that. So by the time I get to the mixing phase, I've got something that I think feels really cool and I'm really excited about. And then since it's my own music, that's the worst stuff. I've, I've written it, recorded it, performed it, and now I have to mix it. I really do try to record everything and walk away and then come back and just zero out the session and just try to pull things up and, and mix it with just volume faders and pan with no plugins from scratch as if I've never heard it before. Because sometimes I notice that, man, when that shaker track is really loud, it actually feels cool. I didn't really have that up in the mix when I was recording it. Or, you know, I'll pull up something in a, a weird volume that I wasn't expecting and it'll remind me that there's a part that I really liked or didn't like. And I'll he try to hear the song in a different way. And I just try to like not over mix it because if you're the guy recording it, hopefully you made it sound really good on recording day. And if it's not sounding good enough, 
and you're mixing it, it may just be that that's the edge of your ability and, and that's okay. You know, you finish that project. We were talking about that earlier, finish it, send it out into the world, warts and all, and move on to your next project. That's how you're going to get better at this whole thing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I've noticed, cause we do a lot of Skype crits and, you know, we're also very engaged with our audience. I've just noticed that people will work on the same material for way too long. I've even noticed this as a producer when I every once in a while do an unsigned band and they've been they bring in a set of songs that are the same songs they've had for eight years. It's like keep moving on. If something's not good enough, you'll get better if you move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. Your songs will get better. Your mixes will get better. Everything will get better. And since you have more under your belt, the more that you've done, you won't care as much about every individual little song. You'll have the a bigger ability or a stronger ability to say, yeah, that sucks. Let's move That's on. That's huge. Who is it? Ira Glass is famous. That long quote he has about what he wish he knew about being a creative and getting good at your craft when he started, which is to not quit because it takes a large body of work to actually get as good at your craft as the taste that you have in your head. And that's, yep. that's exactly what you're talking about is that if you're never finishing those, those 10 songs you wrote back in high school, uh, because you're afraid that they're not perfect, you're actually fighting against the best thing you could do to get better at this whole thing is, is produce a large body of work. And, and that's both sad and also encouraging because it doesn't mean you have to be someone special. You just have to, everyone has to go through that process if you're creative. I think it was Dave Grohl who said something about you have to write 10 terrible songs before you write one good one. He said something like that, which I really liked. So, you know, I, I had a band come in here this year and they brought 36 songs and we narrowed it down to 13. And that was nice because I feel like that's the way it should be. You know, a lot of guys come in seven songs and we have to write four. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely write a lot more than can ever possibly use. You can apply the same thing with mixes. Do more than one mix on a song. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I know the Beatles said you need to write at least 100 songs before you get all the bad ones out of you. And they said that the reason that George Harrison took a while to become as great of a writer as Paul and John. This is what this comes straight from their autobiography. They just said that he started later. So they were already done with all their bad songs when he was just starting to mm. get serious about writing. So within a few years, though, he had gotten all the bad ones out of his system. He had written a few hundred songs. And that's when you started to hear the really great George Harrison songs like While My Guitar Gently Weeps or or whatever other great songs he's written. There's tons of them. But yeah, it just it takes, like you were saying, a large body of mm. work, more than 10,000 hours, in my mm. opinion. Yeah. So with that, Graham, I want to thank you for coming on. You've been a fantastic guest. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, dude, I'm I'm honored. Thank you guys, man. I'm honored to be in a conversation with all three of you. You guys are very good at what you do. I love I love what you guys are doing, continuing to add to this community that we're a part of, helping so many people. And I, I hope people continue to listen in and take your advice and do it. And likewise, man, I've been following your stuff for years and really, really appreciate what you've been doing for everybody. I think that there really needs to be more people like you and like what we're doing, helping to raise the bar out there because I don't know if the schools are doing it, but music definitely needs it. So um, I, thank absolutely, you. I agree. Thanks for having me on guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Graham. Pleasure. 
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Apex, high-quality analog gear for the recording studio. For over 40 years, the patented Apex Exciter Circuit has been audio engineer's secret weapon for signal enhancement, adding depth and punch to the lows and clarity and sparkle to the highs. Visit Apex.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.